When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Robert Kreese about the new book, The Leak, Politics, Activists, and Loss of Trust at Brookhaven National Laboratory. How the discovery of a harmless leak of radiation sparked a media firestorm, political grandstanding, and fear-mongering that closed a vital scientific facility. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Galina. I'm very happy to have the chance to talk about the book. You know, my head has been so full of writing the book for so long. Now I can talk to someone about it. So, can you introduce yourself? What do you do? Well, my name is Robert Kreese. I'm a professor of philosophy at Stony Brook University. I'm actually the, the chair of the department. And I've been, I work on the, the history and philosophy of science. And I, I uh, started, you know, I went to graduate school as a, um, to study philosophy at, at, uh, at Columbia. And while I was a grad student, my, um, a friend of mine, my college roommate, and I started writing articles about various scientific episodes in the in the um, in the vicinity. Uh, do, do you happen to know Charles Mann? He was he he wrote fourteen ninety one and fourteen ninety three. He's a he's a pretty well known author right now. But he um, he he and I started uh, uh, as I said he was my college roommate. He and I started writing about scientific facilities. And when I became a philosopher at Stony Brook. I began to see that the things that philosophers of science were studying about science really had little to do with how it was actually practiced. That is, philosophers of science studied things like, uh, well, logical things, relation between theory and evidence, the development of theories, and so forth. But, But what it was like for scientists to work in a social environment was something that they very rarely wrote about. So that's something I became interested in. And I also began writing the history of Brookhaven National Laboratory. Um, I mean, maybe we'll get to more of the history, but um, it it was founded in 1947, right after World War II. And I wrote a book about the history of its first 25 years. And just at the tail end of it, this episode happened. That is what I wrote about in the leak. And it was just an amazing episode um, uh, for me. In fact, I I couldn't quite believe what was happening. And um, at the time, I thought I was thinking of writing about it, but, but I thought that nobody would believe what was happening. And so I didn't write about it for for 25 years. And suddenly, suddenly it becomes what happened be, has become very current. And in your career, have you ever been tempted to become a scientist yourself? Not really. I just have so much fun writing about it. I mean, I guess, you know, philosophers, um, Philosophers like to stick their nose into other people's business and, uh, you know, find out about other fields and and, and so forth and learn how they work and, and compare and contrast them. And I, I like doing that. So, um, so no, I'm not tempted to become a scientist. I just want to um, study it. And in your career journey, did you have mentors that really inspired and supported you? Um, there were a few I, I mean, there was a philosopher, There were some philosophers who did philosophy of science, um, and uh, but of the the sort that I'm I'm interested in, but not quite. But but no, I thought I was really doing in 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 focusing on 
how science really works in a social environment. Um, I was pretty much, I think, um, doing something original. And as a mentor yourself, what would you say to our student listeners and perhaps philosophers who are considering studying the philosophy of science? Um, I'd say try to write try to write about it. Try to write short articles uh, about what you see because those will teach you how to study, how to do research, how to talk to people and so forth. I mean, I am a... Um, I've been writing a column for a physics magazine for almost 23 years now. It's called Critical Point, and it's about historical and philosophical and sociological dimensions of, of uh, sometimes artistic uh, dimensions of, of physics. And I have a limit, it's 950 words, and the editor goes over it. And every time I use jargon, he says, nope, you gotta cut that, rewrite it. And that's taught that's taught me a lot. It, it it taught me a lot how to express how to how to develop ideas that you that are important enough to write about and will interest people, but that you can say concisely enough in 950 words, that is one page. So I get my my advice is wanna write um about anything? Well, practice. So your latest book that you wrote together with your co-author, Peter Bond, is The Leak, Politics, Activists, and Loss of Trust at Brookhaven National Laboratory. So how did your collaboration with Peter come about? Well, as I said, at the time, at the time it was happening, I, I thought maybe I wanted to write about this. But it was, um, but I, I didn't think people would believe the story. It was so incredible. It was so implausible. And but I collected material, and um, Peter, who who was actually at the lab at the time, thought that it, also thought that it was an important story, and he collected some material. Now he's not a writer. He was he was a scientist himself. But he kept pushing me every once in a while and say, "Pop, you ought to you ought to write about this." And um, finally, at the beginning of the pandemic, I thought, or just before it started, he and I started working together. And, and you know, the book is literally with him. I wrote it with him. But he would, he would find documents for me. He would arrange contacts with people. He would, every time I wrote something, he would go over it with a fine-toothed comb. And uh, he was incredibly patient, incredibly insightful. Every time I'd say something sloppily or maybe too emotionally or 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 something, he would he would point it out. And 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 so it was it was really a a, a wonderful uh, collaboration. And we started out, as I said, just before the pandemic, and I would go over to his house and we would go over. The, the events week by week, month by month, um, and I'd take notes and I would uh, go home and write it and send it to him. And uh, then the pandemic started and we we would Zoom together once or, or twice a week and uh, slowly we pieced the story together. Okay, so let's jump right in. And can we start with sort of general profile of the decade and a year of 1997? So what was happening in the world? In the 1990s, mm-hmm. well, there was an increased. Um, what, what sort of what sort of thing do you mean? You mean general events or or scientific events? What's um, um, where's uh, what are you getting at? So, put us in that decade because nowadays, for example, going through pandemic, world has changed, so we don't really know what kind of things were happening. So, were there smartphones? Was there communication globally or ah that's interesting no there weren't um that it it was kind of a different environment this was before social media so you know information circulated through newspapers headlines for newspapers if people found something uh people and, and this was important for the story if people knew about the lab, it was mostly through headlines, you know, not even the story, perhaps. But but um, Brookhaven was building a um, oh, well, l- let me talk just a little bit about Brookhaven before I answer that. Brookhaven, um, as I said, was founded in 1947, first of the um, one of the first national laboratories. 
And the reason national laboratories were built was to build instruments that were too big, too big a scale for individual universities or industries to afford. And most of them were, um, uh, such as in particular, uh, reactors and accelerators. These were, you know, individual universities, uh, science departments could, couldn't afford them. So Brookhaven then built several generations of these instruments of, of reactors and, and um, accelerators. And I should say, when they, uh, by reactors, I mean research reactors, because it, it's very important to distinguish between two kinds of reactors. One is power reactors that are designed to produce electricity, and those are huge. And then there's research reactors, which are comparatively uh, which are much smaller, and they're designed they're, they're designed to do scientific research. And it's really you, you you need to to understand the difference because you know in power react uh, neutron uh, reactors produce two things neutrons and heat. And in power reactors, you keep the heat and turn it into energy, and you throw away the neutrons. In research reactors, you throw away the heat and use the neutrons for research. Neutrons are used for um, for studying, you know, structures of materials, and this was important in the day because superconductivity had just been um, uh, discovered, and you needed neutrons to understand the material structure. Uh, they use it for imaging, biological imaging. They use it for for uh, uh, making uh, cancer diagnoses and uh, cures and for producing medical isotopes for um, for health reasons and uh, so that's what the 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 the, the second generation of re research reactors at Brookhaven um, the the second generation reactor was called the high flux beam reactor that pr produced a lot of neutrons finished completed 1965 and it ran ran you know safely for over 30 years um and uh this was it, it did a lot of very valuable scientific research but to get to the 1990s as you said in by that time a uh there were increasing concerns about about reactors. I mean, reactors are symbolically very loaded. They're the sign of the, the, the at the t at the time they were the sign of the future. Um, they, they were symbolic of the future and of science scientific progress. But increasingly, they also became associated with with fear. They became you know magnets for 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 fear, especially after certain episodes like uh, Three Mile Island, nineteen seventy nine. Um, Chernobyl, 1986. So there was uh, escalated, elevated concerns about the safety of nuclear reactors. Now, uh, again, these were mainly, th these were about not research reactors, but about uh, power reactors, but it was easy to transfer the, the, the fear from, from one to the other. So, and then, so you asked about what else was different about the 90s? Well, there was um, as I said, no social media, you learn from headlines, the, um, and, um, well, a number of other things that, that, uh, I mean, are you, are you thinking of anything in particular? No, that actually completely answers my, my question, because ah. many of our listeners are going to be a little bit younger, so they would not really <laughs> understand what kind of decade we're talking about. <laughs> So with the Brookhaven National Laboratory, who worked there? What kind of people were there? Were there physicists, contractors, or can you go there with your own project? Oh, that, I mean, that, that is an interesting question because that's an important part of Brookhaven. Brookhaven, as a, as a national laboratory, it was built to study all kinds of, of uh, basic research. That is not a military laboratory. It was for basic um, research. And so there was, uh, there, there were physicists who were studying at the time, they were building a machine to study the early universe, you know, and quark gluon plasma and the, 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 the universe as it was just a few seconds after the Big Bang, there were, there were chemists, there were, uh, there was a huge medical and biological program to develop uh, imaging, um, imaging methods 
the uh, the first PET scanner had been built early on at Brookhaven, and Brookhaven had pioneered the use of, of a lot of uh, medical imaging uh, isotopes. There was an engineering department. There was, uh, as I said, there was a uh, medical department. So it was, it, it was basically research that people from all over, people at universities from all over the country and all over the, the world would use. So again, not not military. It's um, it it was open to scientific researchers from from everywhere. Okay, so do we need to know anything else from the background before we come to the main event that is the title of your book, The Leak? Um, don't think so. It's um, what happens next is what the book is all about. Yep, that's the juiciest part. Okay, so what happened? <laughs> what do you refer to? What is the leak? Well, it's um, the book is about how a non-hazardous leak led to the closure of a major scientific facility, that is the high-flux beam reactor, and nearly of the laboratory itself. So non-hazardous leak dropped into this highly sensitive, uh, hypercharged environment, and it, it closed the reactor and nearly the lab itself. And it's an early case of science denial. I mean, it was it was the canary in the coal mine, you might say, for a lot of what we see around us. Conspiracy theories, science denial, politicians believing celebrities, celebrities becoming politicians, and, and uh, people evaluating whether scientific results are true or not based upon the political implications, only the political uh, implications and, and so on. And as I said at the time, I just couldn't believe that this was happening. But um, I see it all around us now. And it's important to tell this story. Okay, so what happened? What was the um, sort of technical part of the incident? What do we know? The technical part was, you know, the, the, the you have the reactor itself, which is run by uranium fuel elements. And when the uranium fuel elements are spent, when they're you know, used up, you take them and you put them in a nearby pool of water. And that's called a spent fuel, uh, spent, let's call it the spent fuel vessel. And when in the spent fuel vessel, because they are, are uh, these fuel elements are radioactive, they turn some of the water into tritium, which is tritium is a, a an isotope of hydrogen, which is uh, radioactive, but it's it's very well lightly radioactive, meaning the radioactivity can be stopped by a single piece of paper, and it has a half life of. 12.3 years, meaning that that it uh, it gradually decays and eventually uh, vanishes. And it's, you know, a relatively innocuous kind of radioactivity. It's used in self-eliminating exit signs, for instance. I mean, you, you know, the exit signs, that th these were put in a lot of uh, federal buildings right after the uh, the World Trade Center uh, uh, bombing. Uh, the the self-eliminating exit signs um, they're geo geophysicists, uh, hydrogeologists put tritium in the ground to um, to monitor ground flow. They're used in self-eliminating watches and so forth. So it's it's used a lot, but it was it was the material in this spent fuel vessel, and the leak was that the spent fuel vessel began to to leak tritium, and that this was discovered at the end of 1996. And it was announced at the beginning of 1997, after the uh, readings were confirmed. And it was that announcement that created the firestorm that the um, that the the book is all about. Now, I should say, let me say that the lab was not entirely innocent. They should have discovered this leak beforehand. It had been leaking for for 12 years. Um, so that's. That's a big element in in you know the 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 loss of trust at the lab. If if the scientists could not uh, you know said that that it wasn't leaking and then they discover a leak, if they if they're mistaken about that, what else could they be mistaken about? So, but 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 it was that that the book is about the the, the technical aspect is about that leak, um, the leak of tritium and its discovery. Yeah, because uh, tritium is uh, the same as uh, heavy water. We can call it heavy water, isn't it? And we've got plenty of deposits around. So from technical point of view, we already know, knew that this is quite 
not maybe innocuous, but not hazardous? Well, not quite heavy water. I mean, heavy water, you know, ordinary hydrogen has one uh, proton in the nucleus. Heavy water has a proton and a neutron, and it's not radioactive. And it's used in reactors to, to heavy water is used to, to moderate or slow down the, the neutrons. Tritium is with uh, a proton and two neutrons in the nucleus. So it's, yeah. it's you know, if you, if you take ordinary hydrogen, you add one neutron, that's heavy water, not radioactive, two neutrons, it's tritium, and it does... Um, uh, it is this this soft, it's called a soft beta emitter, meaning it's this soft form of radiation. But as hydrogen, it combines with water. So it, it, it acts in the ground just like water. You put it in the water and it's, it's um, you know, it moves with the water, it combines with the water, um, that sort of thing. So it's it's an it's a, a second isotope, well third actually, beside um, the the original hydrogen. So hydrogen um, deuterium, uh, which makes heavy water, and tritium. Aha, gotcha. So then let's turn to the reactions. So we can have different levels as well where people reacted at. So starting with maybe scientists and technicians and what's, what was going on in the field, how did they react to it? Well, again, that's interesting. And one, one of the interesting things about the book that I was, I was, um, quite, um, quite enthralled to find was to, to see was that the, the different reactions from different groups of people. Um, the, the scientific community sort of said, ho, basically ho-hum, um, tritium isn't dangerous, the, the leak was not getting into drinking water, either the lab or beyond the borders of the lab. It was gonna decay, you could, you could uh, it was above the drinking water standards, but those were so low that it was, it was safe to drink. So the, the scientific community thought, you know, big deal, we'll stop the leak and, and, uh, and that'll be fine. The environmental scientists at the lab said, um, wait a minute, how come we didn't spot the leak for, for uh, you know, a dozen years? Um, and so they were concerned about how this, this reactor that had been designed so safely could, uh, how come there could be this like literal hole in, in the plans? Huh. The um, politicians uh, was, uh, were, uh, politicians was, was another group. There was, you know, the political climate at the uh, around the lab. You know, the, we're, we're talking about Long Island and the easternmost tip of Long Island called Suffolk County, and the local senator and and congressman were they were going to be facing tough reelection campaigns. They were Republican conservative Republicans who didn't have. Um, many environmental credentials. In fact, Senator Alphonse D'Amato had literally zero environmental credentials. The the League of of Conservation Voters um, gave him a rating of zero percent out of you know a uh, uh, hundred, and they jumped on this it, this this leak in order to show how concerned about the the environment that uh, that they were. Um, so the the reaction from politicians was was that they they um, attacked the lab um, for for having missed this 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 leak for so long. The um, local anti nuclear activists also uh, th this this uh, riveted their attention because it was a leak. You know, it wasn't technically a leak from the reactor; it was a leak from the spent fuel pool. But nevertheless, they were um, the local anti-nuclear activists seized upon it as a possible reason to shut the the reactor, and then the media, of course, loved it because the media could could write about could compare it to Chernobyl or I mean illegitimately, but they could compare it to Chernobyl or Three Mile Island. They could run. Uh, I mean, the local tabloids could run pictures of of skeletons and 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 uh, atomic explosions and so forth. So you had, meanwhile, the, the Department of Energy, who who owned the laboratory, 
um, was concerned because the Department of Energy ran many scientific facilities throughout the country. And every time there was a problem at one of them, they, they feared for their reputation. Mm. So you have all these groups, you know, and, and even in the local community, you have some people who live near the lab and who who dialogue with the lab and you have other people who are a little, who are, were afraid of the laboratory. Um, and the uh, you have all these groups with different kinds of attitudes towards what was happening. And here you drop in this announcement of this leak and it it created this this maelstrom. So what was the immediate aftermath for the laboratory? Was it shut? Well, um, no, it was a long drawn out, you know, again, I keep, sorry, Galina, I keep saying this, but it's, uh, it's true. It's that there's an unfolding story uh, which the book, my book, The Leak, is about. Uh, in the first few, so the, the leak is announced mid-January. Uh, politicians immediately jump on it and begin to attack the laboratory for, you know, its supposed laxness and, and endangering of the, the community. The, um, uh, the laboratory, meanwhile, sets out to determine, to, to figure out what's causing the leak. Um, then at the beginning of May, the Department of Energy fires the, the, um, the contractor, the manager of the laboratory called Associated Universities Incorporated. This is the, a group that's designed to, to run it, run the laboratory sort of like a university environment. And, um, but instead that firing, instead of calming the public, um, created more fear because basically it was saying the, the, the Department of Energy thought that the, the leak was very dangerous because they wouldn't have done this without, um, people thought, without there being a, a serious danger. And then in the summer, um, summer afterwards, this is summer of 1997, um, crazy things happen. And that is what, what I think is, well, one of the bizarre, the, these are the pieces, the bizarre pieces of the story that I couldn't believe at the time. Um, one of them was at a, uh, you know, as I said, the, the a, a tritium, a pool of tritium was discovered, you know, near the reactor. Um, at a 10 days after the firing of the contractor, a New Jersey teenager after prom got a little drunk, went to a landfill, discovered one of these exit signs. Remember, I told you the tritium is in self-eliminating exit signs, broke it open and wound up ingesting some tritium. Oh, no. He, uh, yeah. Yeah. Then he looked at Then he saw the radiator. A radioactive sign on it. He got terrified, went to um, his doctor. The doctor examined him and his pee contained a higher concentration of tritium than the plume itself. So, but then the doctor said, but it's safe. Go home, drink lots of water and pee it out. And the, and the doctor said, I, I, I talked to, I didn't talk to that doctor, but another doctor who was working on it said that normally they'd tell the person to drink beer and pee it out, but the kid, this kid was underage. So um, the, uh, that, but, but the doctor was right. It was, it, the, 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 um, the teenager was not in danger. So here you have, you know, you have an incredible irony that if you read this in a story, you wouldn't believe it, that you have uh, a, um, uh, a manager of a laboratory fired for a leak, but then then a teenager drinking um, tritium at the same time, but but it being completely safe. So um, that's that was one of the ironies of the uh, of the story. Oh, but by the way, I I should say too that the 1997. Uh, I forgot to mention this was the 50th year of Brookhaven. So, you know, the, the, the lab was about to, was trying, was on the verge of celebrating its 50th anniversary, half century of existence, during which time it had been awarded, its work had been awarded four Nobel Prizes. And then this, this catastrophe happens. It turns out to, to turn into a chaotic period in which one of its major instruments was shut down. So um, I guess I've taken the story to the summer of 1997. Is that, uh, should I go farther than that? 
Yeah, sure. Okay, so the summer of 1997, an anti-nuclear uh, activist group forms to uh, to whose whose um, aim is to shut the reactor, and it's run by celebrities, including most notably Alec Baldwin and. Uh, a little bit later, Christy Brinkley, and so they they join this attempt to um, to shut the reactor. In the fall, in September, the two politicians, Alphonse D'Amato and uh, Michael Forbes, introduced legislation to terminate the reactor uh, completely, and the um, eventually in. Um, two and a half years later, the re reactor is terminated uh, completely. And so the, this book, um, I mean, just to summarize this 300, uh, I, I can't really summarize this 300-page book. It's full of these incredible events that you can't believe. Eventually, the reactor is terminated. Um, and it's terminated by the... Um, by the Department of Energy Secretary without telling the lab. So the lab is the lab is constantly ambushed by these um, by events. Um, and at the end, by the closure of the reactor without telling the, the lab, they, everyone learned about it from the newspapers. So why did it all happen this way? Did it have to happen this way? You know, that's an interesting question. And I still wonder. Hmm. Um, in, in a sense, it did because everyone was acting the way they knew how to act. the The scientists would were, were, you know, they they thought that the numbers showed that this wasn't dangerous. So, um, and when they explained to the public, they explained things very cautiously and with error bars. The activists were uh, said things very dramatically and set up. Um, you know, very colorful protests, made-for-TV protests that with uh, dressed up as mushroom clouds and, and so on. Politicians were, you know, listened to the public, listened to their voters, and made decisions based on what they thought their voters wanted and their own political ambitions. The people in Washington, the Department of Energy bureaucrats made decisions based on, you know, how what they thought was the best welfare of the entire um, national laboratory system. So in, in a way, everyone played the game as well as they could, uh, the way that they knew how. And what was what what I think the point of the book is, do we want things to happen this way? The um, do we want our uh, important decisions about health and safety and the environment to be made in the way that they were in 1997, 1998? And I think, I think the answer is obviously no, and that we should think about doing things otherwise. That is, you know, if, if, if you ask, should the, should the reactor have been terminated? I don't know the answer to that. We decide uh you know countries decide to build scientific instruments based on their judgment about what kind of science they want and what kind of risks they're willing to um to uh, incur um so I, I can't really judge as to whether it was a wise decision to close the reactor but i do know from the events that the way the decision was made was not wise the way that just from celebrity influence, political ambition, newspaper headlines, um, the way it was made, I don't want decisions to be made about my health and safety the way they were made in, in this case. And our listeners will find more details about all of these events in your book, of course. So let's talk a little bit about the consequences and perhaps legacy of this uh, event. So you already mentioned that it has impact on some of the controversies that we see today. Well, uh, there are several things. I mean, from a purely scientific um, standpoint, there, the, the consequences were bad in that there's uh, the, you know, the, there were very few neutron facilities at the neutron scattering facilities at the time. You need neutrons to study certain aspects of, of, 
of the structure of metal, say, or for um, to to study, you know, to to image biological samples and so forth. You also need neutrons to make radioisotopes because isotopes are important for medical diagnosis and medical treatment. And with neutron with the with the neutron facilities dwindling. And the HFPR was the principal source of them at the time. The um, American um, programs in neutron science were severely hurt, and people began to go to Europe, where the you know um, the uh, there's a reactor in um, in Grenoble, the uh, Institute uh, Langevin. Um, they have a, a new neutron scattering facility. So, so it hurt the American uh, science program. But it also, as I said, was the canary in the coal mine for things that are, that are happening today. And I think you can see, oh, wait a minute, I should mention something else. After this, after the um, Associated Universities was fired as the manager of Brookhaven, the Department of Energy changed its contracting system to encourage the managers to be more bureaucratic. So the character of the way science is practiced at the national laboratories changed after that. And the Brookhaven uh, concept, the fallout literally from, well, no, not literally, sorry, metaphorically from um, from Brookhaven was to, to change the character of the uh, atmosphere, working atmosphere in, in um, national laboratories. But then, as I said, the, the main thing that, that fascinated me from the beginning was that this was the canary in the coal mine for a lot of the things, a lot of the episodes of science denial from, um, from you know, global, uh, global anti-global warming people, the anti-vaxxers and, uh, and so forth. Um, that uh, all the, the techniques you have, you see there, were practiced at Brookhaven 25 years ago. So this is kind of a you know little ocular into into what's happening now. So uh, was it a matter of lack of communication that, for example, today we can have everything in our smartphones right away. You know, if something's happening. But in those days, as you said, you had to wait for the headlines and look through the newspapers. Well, you know, um, if you turn the book over and look at the back, there's a quote from the uh, president of the uh, U.S. Uh, National Academy of Sciences, Marshall McNutt, who says, if you think that um, the successful spread of misinformation was, uh, is due to social media, think again because basically this is what happened then. If you looked at headlines served just as well in those days, if you learned about what was happening at the lab just from headlines, you had no reason not to think that the laboratory was dangerous. I mean, I talked to, um, I ran into somebody who, who actually has read the book, um, who I didn't know. And he said, you know, he grew up on Long Island and he just assumed the laboratory was a, was a very dangerous place. And then he read my book and he saw all of the episodes happening and, and, and he realized that it wasn't the way that, that, that he thought it was, but he understood why he, he got that impression. So um, the, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot what your question was. The communication. Oh, communication, right. That, I mean, that's an important question too. What would have... Uh, and it connects to something you said before, which is, you know, what could have prevented it. And but I don't think it was just communication. You know, people think, oh, let's have scientists be better communicators of their work. I mean, you might have gone through things. You're, you're a grad student in, in um, what neuroscience, right? Mm -hmm. um, you may have taken um, courses in, in how to explain your work to the public. I mean, at Stony Brook here, we have a, a special uh, Alan Alda Center to, to teach scientists to explain their work to the public. But this isn't quite, but you know, this didn't quite work at Brookhaven. And the reason it didn't work is because of everything else, all the other surrounding episodes um, and things that were happening and the distrust that was being cultivated by uh, the activists and the politicians, uh, a good science communicator, you know, they would have been tarred. People would have said, oh, but you're from the laboratory. What you said is false. So um, that's, 
So I don't think it's just communication. And, and it's easy to say, oh, just educate people better. But, you know, I don't think education works either. It's the whole climate that produced what, what has happened. Like it's the whole climate today that produced what is happening. I mean, if, if someone, you, you, you must have seen or read uh, climate scientists explaining carefully why they, they think what they do, and but they're completely ignored by people who are opposed to them. Uh, vaxxers as well, too, you know, and, and they're, and they're, you know, Fauci was a great explainer, but he was, um, you know, uh, there are people who don't believe him. So, uh, oh, one more element that I sh- that, that that I should mention. I forgot to mention was that w- one of the bad things that happens when you have conspiracy theories floating around, major conspiracy theories, is that you have to undermine the authority. You have to undermine trust in reputable institutions whose aim is to protect you. So, you know, if you really don't believe in global warming, you have to distrust all of those institutions that say there is global warming. If you don't trust um, vaccines, then you have to distrust the EPA and other people who tell you that uh, that, that that you need, uh, that, that the vaccines work. And similarly, there was the, these conspiracy these conspiracy theories that floated around Long Island, in order to be to to uh, in order to work, they had to cast distrust on the local organizations whose job it was to protect the groundwater. So the Suffolk, uh, for instance, the Suffolk uh, County Water Authority. And the Suffolk County Water Authority knew that the local water was was good. It was it was drinkable? It was it was pure. Um, but they were being tarred by the activists who said that uh, oh they must be wrong. And the local water authority ran newspaper ads. Were were forced to run newspaper ads saying no no the water's safe. You may have heard that there's pollution in the water. That's not true. The water is safe. So that's one of the the you know collateral damages of conspiracy theories is that you have they you have to cast distrust on trustworthy organizations. Well, for sure, and to debunk something, you have to do it in ten times more resources being allocated to that. Exactly, you have to you have to debunk people, and you have to debunk very reputable people in order to to maintain your conspiracy theory. So has there been something that good <laughs> that came out of it? Maybe policy changes or more control over overlook? You already mentioned about the managerial structure. Mm-hmm. There, there were, well, one good thing was that the laboratory, the new manager of the laboratory, initiated a, um, a dialogue uh, forum between the laboratory and various communities uh, uh, around called the Citizens uh, um, um, Community Advisory Council. And they bring together different, a whole range of people from activists to, you know, people support the lab and so forth. And they meet monthly and they uh, they talk through issues. That was a very, very positive thing. And it should have happened to the lab- laboratory. Well, I guess it should have happened at the, at the beginning. But um, uh, that's one very, very positive uh, uh, thing. The, the, and the other is that it's, caused what happened caused us to think about how to care for large scientific facilities you know you you have to care to the about the community reception of them you know not just build these these wonderful um uh, state-of-the-art uh scientific facilities you 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 have to think about how the how it will be received by the communities around you. Yeah, absolutely. You can't just put it there and uh, just look at it. You have to maintain it and everything like that. Exactly. You can't just slap it in, in slap it down and, and expect that uh, it will be well received. So you just described absolutely crucial point that, you know, in these kind of events, it's never just one thing like communication. For example, there's a lot going on, like agendas of different parties and politicians and perhaps public and media. And 
is there a way to actually tackle these kinds of events well if there's just so many different moving parts? You know, that's a very interesting question. In a way, that's the book, that, that, that's the point that the book uh, is points towards. I mean, at the, at, at the end of the book, well, all throughout the uh, research, I would ask people, um, what went wrong? How could we do this better? And maybe I asked, you know, two dozen people. And Galena, I got two dozen different answers. And I put them, or many of them, at the, the end of the book. So one person said, um, look, you, you can't, if you're doing nuclear research, you can't fly below the radar. You have to explain to the public what you're doing and the risks. Because then if there's a blip, if you have an accident, then you don't have any capital in order to, to be able to address what's happening. Uh, another person said, trusting relationships. Uh, Martha Krebs, who was in the Department of Energy at the time, said the key was trusting relationships. If you don't have trusting relationships, then not it's not going to happen. Another person, Ernie Moniz, who was also in the Department of Energy, said uh, politicians. If your politicians aren't in, uh, if you want to do something major and the department, your local politicians aren't behind you, then you haven't done your homework. So there was a whole set of uh, different kinds of responses, which is what was interesting. You know, that was something that was fascinating to me. But, you know, in, in a way, the most interesting comment was by the person who took over directing the laboratory at, uh, at the end called John Marburger. And he said, you know, it's what happened at Brookhaven was sort of like um, a catastrophe in the engineering sense of the word. And which is that, you know, a catastrophe in, in that sense is when you have a, a machine that's running a complex machine, but it grows out of sync with the environment. So that one time, all it takes is one tiny thing to go wrong and the whole machine stops or breaks down. And so the, you know, it's like, like a relationship if, if, you know, you, you, you might've had friends who go, oh, we broke up because uh, that person, they forgot to mail a letter. Well, you know, what, what, why was it, why is, does the letter bring the relationship to halt? And in fact, it's, it's not just the letter, it's the whole, you know, relationship itself. Well, in Brookhaven, it was the relationship between the lab and the environment where um, it had grown out of sync and all it took was one thing, this this leak, this non-hazardous leak, which leads to this huge breakdown. So um, the, the answer to your question, you know, I, I know it's yeah, you're you're not going to be you're going to be unhappy with this response, but you know, there's no single tweak that you can that you can give. There's no single thing that you can point to. You know, oh, communications or politicians or trust or that sort of thing. It's you have to you, you have to pay attention to the whole connection between the facility and the environment. And that, that, I think, is the lesson of the book. Oh, yeah, I absolutely love this match of metaphor. It kind of really puts everything in place for me, like looking at those engineering diagrams about failure, you know, because that's something yeah. that can happen very, very rarely, but has catastrophic events and pretty much impossible to prevent. Yeah. So what discoveries in your research for the book, The League, surprised you the most? You know, what surprised me the most was that there were parts that were funny. Every once in a while, I'd come across these things that were happening and they make me laugh and they made people at the at the time laugh. So that was my um, that was part of the delightful elements in my research. And have you visited uh, the laboratory yourself? Not well. At the, as I said, at the time I was there and I saw many of these protests, and I, um, you know, talked to a lot of people. But, but recently, since the pandemic, I haven't been there. No. Excellent. Well, this has been a really fascinating and very insightful uh, talk. So, can you tell us what are you focusing on now, and what will be your next project? Well. As I said, the thing that attracted me to um, philosophy of science was that um, the, this question about what the, the about the relation of scientific facilities 
and scientific authority and the surrounding communities. What kind of authority does science have? Should it be incorporated directly into government or how should it be adjusted? You know, things like this episode that happened at Brookhaven showed that it's a, it's a very poorly understood but highly important um, aspect of science to study the relation between science and, and the communities. So here I wrote this book about one episode. I'd like to write a book about, in general, the relationship between, uh, well, what I was explaining to you is, is the, 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 the complex nature of the relationship between scientific facilities and the surrounding communities. And what's the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? Well... Um, Googling is a good place to start. I have a lot of uh, books on, on uh, 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 books published, although the, the, this is the this is the one I like the most um, or right now. And you know, I've, I've, I'm actually revising my website. It's robertpcrease.com. If you go there, you know, right now, Galina, you'll see that that it says, you know, site under construction. But, you know, maybe today or tomorrow, I hope to be able to make it go live. Hey, great. Going to check. <laughs> okay. So is there any last message that you would like to leave our uh, listeners with? The last message, I think, is that this is a very important. The relation between science and society, I think, is the... Um, well, I, let me go on a limb, out on a limb and say it's the most important issue today. The the major existential questions that humanity faces all involve the relationship at one point the relationship between science and society. Global warming, you know, how, how um, what is it? How do we believe it? How do we respond to it? These are these are questions that involve the relation between science and and society. Pandemics. Obviously, we've seen that as well too. So I think this is this is the most important scientific. Uh, this is the most important social issue that we face, which is um, how society digests uh, science and scientific authority. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Galena. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about the book.